Listen now to the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not then the sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That is a glorious text of Scripture. Agreed? Amen. Praise God for the truths that are here. Let's now talk through this text just a bit. And let me start with a question this morning. How are you doing in your battle against sin? How are you doing in your battle against old, familiar sins? How are you doing? Now, even though that probably sounds like a, a pretty churchy-type question, it's quite possibly not the one you most wanted to hear right out of the blocks in a Sunday sermon. <laughs> you may have come here today, for instance, hoping to forget about that battle just for a little while, maybe wanting to gain a little bit of relief from it. it sometimes happens in the company of believers. Uh, temptations can tend to ease when we're together with brothers and sisters in Christ, even if only mildly and if even only for a season. And that persistent voice in our ear calling us in a different direction is at times quieted in this setting. So some very well may have come this morning looking for that, and now I'm putting this question in front of you right from the start, bringing it back to mind. 
Being at church can help. But you know what? It is also entirely possible that at church you meet others who've learned to ignore the temptations. Or maybe who've made friends with the voice. Persistent, familiar expressions of of self-will or of self-importance, good or bad, or of self-gratification, just different self-oriented expressions can become so familiar to us that we just gradually move them out of the category of sin that's offensive to God. That's how we deal with them, some of us. We just sort of pretend that they're not as bad as they actually are. We call them personality quirks or maybe vocational habits or, or maybe societal reactions. If you don't recognize the generalized description, you might say to yourself, ah, that's just me. Or, you know, that's just the way we say it at the office. Or, it's not my fault that other people are idiots. Your chuckling is very reassuring to me this morning. (laughs) It means you're following me thus far. It is very easy to put these old familiar patterns of sin into the category of really not being offensive to God. We really, you know what, he knows that we're but flesh, so he can kind of let us slide on these things. And that's just not how it works. Each of these approaches is excusing what we might call, might call little sins. But before long, almost certainly, they'll be covering bigger ones. That's how it starts. We can get to the place where these sorts of things barely bother us anymore, and you can even find that company right here in the church. What you'll also find here is something that I've already referred to in our prayer It's perhaps describable best as the exact opposite problem of what I've just described. There are some among us who are so convinced that they are so marred by sin that even what they think they may have done well, they probably didn't. Just not even confident about some of the most basic things. Did I pick the right pair of socks this morning? Did I really take the best route to work? And I'm glad that you're not chuckling at those. Because I can tell you that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who genuinely struggle on that level. The speed limit says 55, and I glanced down, turned down the radio, and I was doing 56 when I looked back. What do I do? What do I do with that? Neither of these is at all a good place to be. This is not where believers should be living. Neither of them. Getting comfortable with our sin or becoming obsessed with the prevalence of it. Neither one of them are what Scripture describes as what should be the experience of the believer with regard to this 
amazing justification that has been offered through the propitiation that is Christ Jesus that Paul has been talking about for now. Five chapters, and we're moving into chapter 6. For those familiar with these unsettling battles, few texts of Scripture can match the comfort that comes from the final two verses of last week's passage, verses 20 and 21, together, by the way, with verses 8 and 9. But I'm going to read 20 and 21. We read there as chapter 5 finishes, now the law came in to increase the trespass, as we said last week, to make it clear So we understand what sin is. The law was laid down so that we would have a category for understanding what we're doing wrong. But where sin increased, where I become aware of the fact that, oh my goodness, I'm sinning all the time. Because it's it's not just my actions, it's even my attitudes and my thoughts. There's no purity in my heart at all. The law was laid down to show us just that because that is the truth before a holy God. We don't do very well at creating a concept of a holy God in our minds, so the law helps us do that. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to life, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how chapter 5 finished. That is an amazingly comforting passage for those who struggle with sin. A desensitized conscience or an overly sensitized conscience. And most of us fit into one or the other category all the time. Not only is there a way of escape that Paul's talking about here through the grace of God that we receive by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, but God's supply of grace, Paul says in these two verses that conclude chapter 5, God's supply of grace will always run deeper and fuller and richer than our temptation to sin. You cannot out-sin God's grace. All you can do is reject it. You cannot outsin God's grace. There is no way to sin so deeply that God's grace cannot cover it in Christ in response to confession and repentance and trust in Him. Jesus is always a greater Savior than we are sinners. Always. We couldn't get better news than this, right? That's how chapter 5 finished. Now, in the next chapter, Paul begins explaining to his readers more about how this happens, how to live in light of this truth, how it is that what we just read in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 works out in our lives. He's moving his focus from justification, which is being declared not guilty before God, to sanctification, which means living in the freedom of that not guilty standing. Living out our justification. 
That's what sanctification is. And that's a summary of chapter 6. We are transitioning from justification to sanctification, living in the freedom of that not guilty standing, freedom from bondage to sin in the first half of chapter 6, verses 1 to 14 that we're looking at today, and then freedom to pursue righteousness, the second half of chapter 6, verses 15 to 23 that God willing we'll be looking at next Sunday. So today, with that introduction, let's walk through our passage in three steps, and you see those in your bulletin as our outline this morning. And they're just drawing a word out of the text, what we should say, what we should know, what we should do. Verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 11, and then verses 11 to 14. So let's, let's walk through this and see what we learn from this text about Entering into the sanctification that is ours because of the finished work that Jesus did for all who believe that's been celebrated in chapter 5. Paul asks the natural question as this chapter opens that should arise from what he's just affirmed in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5. If we've heard him correctly, we should ask just what he's written here. This is one of the things that I have to say to people most often when they're struggling with sin. Do you recognize that when Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's not just joking with you or poking fun. If sin brings grace, why would we want to stop sinning? If we've understood what Paul has said in chapter 5, the natural next question is, Wow, if grace abounds where sin abounds, should we just continue in sin? Why would we not? Now, you hear that something's wrong with that. But my friends, those who struggle to understand the gospel will likely struggle somewhere around this point right here. God's grace is so amazing in response to our sin. As we saw in verse 8 of chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, still dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. He provided a sacrifice while we were still dead in trespasses and sins. The gospel is amazing. But it does raise the question from a human perspective, if grace abounds where sin abounds, why do we not just sin more? That's what we need to appreciate. So you might think it sounds like a cheeky question, but we know that some were slanderously charging Paul with saying this very thing. You saw it back in chapter 3, verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying, Paul wrote there. Now he's getting back to that point. Essentially, what we're seeing here in chapter 6 was introduced in seed form back there in chapter 3. Now we're starting to unpack it together. And we have to grant that the question is precisely the one that should be posed in response to what Paul has just written as chapter 5 comes to a close. Even so, if we followed his argument thus far in Romans, we know what his answer is going to be here. And so it is in verse 2. By no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. It's, it, it, it's answered, it's translated in various ways in different translations, but that's it. By no means. May it never be the case that we sin that grace may abound. 
And then he poses the question that gets us started into an understanding of sanctification. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why would we live in that from which we have been freed? If slaves are liberated from their slavery, why would they go back to slavery? And the answer is probably because it's familiar. We'll get back to that right at the end this morning, God willing. As to this statement here, how can we who died to sin still live it? Change it from an interrogative into a declarative or even an imperative. And you've got a good theme statement for the first half of chapter 6 here. The theme of Romans 6, 1 to 14, you could say is, you have died to sin, don't live in it any longer. That's all we're going to learn today. There it is. There's the bottom line. You've died to sin if your faith is in Christ, if you've trusted him for your salvation, for your justification, you're not guilty standing before God. Don't live in sin any longer. You've been freed from it. Don't go back to it. Just as we learn that by faith in Christ, we're free from the penalty of sin, that's justification. Now we learn that we're also freed from the power of sin. That's sanctification. We've been saved from its penalty, now we're saved from its power. And Paul's just unpacking this in order for them to understand the glories of the gospel. Paul then uses baptism as an illustration. And what a rich experience we had last Sunday. Amen? What a joy. I heard that from so many both here and others watching my stream, what a meaningful time that was. Praise God when we see and see those evidences of and hear testimony to new life in Christ. There's just nothing like that. Praise God. Paul uses baptism here as an illustration, and it just makes sense. Just as justification describes the invisible work of God in the heart and soul and the will of the believer... Sanctification describes the visible result in attitudes, behaviors, actions, manner of speech, manner of life. Sanctification is the outworking of our justification. Justification is an invisible work that happens within us, setting us right with God. Sanctification shows that it's real. It's the proof. It's the good works that follow on the gospel, just like we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We aren't saved by good works. We're saved unto good works. And the good works of Ephesians 2.10 are sanctification. And the, the gospel of Ephesians 2.8 and 9, it's justification and Sanctification makes the invisible work of justification visible. That's what Paul's doing here as well. The same progression here in Romans 6. So Paul employs the visible sign and seal of our saving faith, namely baptism, to illustrate the visible behavior results of our justification, namely sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. In short, if we receive Christ in his death by faith, as our propitiation, as the one who removes our sin by taking it on himself at the cross, 
and absorbing the full wrath of God against our sin, then we will surely also receive the power of God displayed in Jesus' resurrection toward growing in his likeness. That's what Paul's teaching us here. If we've trusted Christ as Savior, if we've been baptized into his death, identified with him in his death, it's not making baptism the means of our salvation. It's illustrating our salvation. If we are baptized into Christ, we will be raised with him. Sometimes we jokingly say that just to defend ourselves, that everyone we've put under the waters of baptism, we've brought back out again. <laughs> we haven't left anybody down there. As far as we know, you're welcome to check if you need to. That can be a humorous statement, except for the fact that it's a true illustration. Everyone who is identified with Christ in baptism is raised again to newness of life, to the praise of the power and the glory of God. That's what Paul says here. These verses are just as stunningly encouraging as, as chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and verses 20 and 21. Let's just read them again. Do you not know? In other words, surely you know. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's what we're identifying with. His death paid for my sin, and I'm publicly acknowledging that in my baptism. By the means that Jesus has appointed, I'm receiving his baptism. I'm identifying with Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We might say we go under the waters of God's judgment with Jesus, identifying with him, recognizing that he paid the penalty. I receive the benefits. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that's a phrase that could disappear in the glorious teaching that's here. I think it's the anchor point of it all, and that's why it's our title this morning to this text. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are raised with him to new life in him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, I love this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus has never taken anyone under the waters of God's judgment without bringing them out to new life on the other side. That's good news. Amen? So, believer, this, this is your inheritance in Christ. This is it. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, you have received the glory of God the Father to live in newness of life. To live in obedience to the Word of God in Christ, enabled by His Spirit. The glory 
of God the Father enables you, empowers you to walk in newness of life just as certainly, listen to me, just as certainly as it empowered Christ to rise from the dead. That's the truth of the gospel that Paul wants us to understand. The glory of God the Father enables you, empowers you to walk in newness of life just as certainly as it empowered Christ to rise from the dead. That's the way Paul talks about it in the second half of Ephesians 1 as he, he prays for them, that they would know the resurrection power that is theirs in Christ to steer away from sin and walk in this new allegiance of life enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the propositional, concrete, foundational, unyielding, unswerving truth of the gospel. We're not even talking about our experience of it yet. We're talking about what we receive by faith in Christ. We receive this. Justification before God, not guilty. And the power of God commensurate with his glory to live in light of that confession. That's amazing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can you not say along with Paul right now, by no means, by no means, why would we do that? How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's verses 1 to 5. Paul then spends the rest of our passage today, and indeed the rest of the chapter, drilling into this truth to make sure his readers understand it, and we can understand why it's such profound importance. We're calling this section what we should know, because Paul begins, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It was our sin that drove us to him. We came to Christ as Savior because of our sin and we want to be freed of it. That's what he's saying. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's why we came. That's why we've trusted Christ as Savior to be set free from sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. In context, the one who has died with Christ, the one who has identified with him through their baptism, the one who has said, I recognize my sin, I need to be free of my sin, I identify with Christ, he took my sin, I receive his righteousness, I've been, I've died with him in a death like his. I'll be raised with him in a resurrection like his for one who has died has been set free from sin. That might need to be written on a post-it note and stuck to the steering wheel of your car or to the mirror in your bathroom or I'm not going to say where else you might print that. Um, not a fan of writing things on our bodies, but uh, you know what? 
this is a truth that should never leave us. We can say, surely this is true when someone dies physically. When someone has died, they're no longer tempted by sin. Some people say, that's the only thing that's going to free me from this familiar temptation, is death. It's a very hopeless statement, but it's a true statement. We can all agree with that. When someone is When someone dies with Christ, meaning they've been placed, they place their trust in him so that his death was in place of their own, it removed their sin and absorbed God's wrath against them. That also frees them from their bondage to sin even before they die physically. They've already died to that sin. That's the point. Paul is making here. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, one piece together with that or inseparable from it, we believe that we will also live with him. And there's a lot of meaning in that statement too. It's speaking of the, the future resurrection and eternal life with Christ, but also of living for God, living out that obedience of faith, being raised with Christ the way Paul talks about in the letter to the Ephesians, living in the power of the resurrection already here and now, even before the day that our actual physical bodies are raised from the dead. So it's all of that together. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him between now and the day when we enter his presence forever. Verse 10, for the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's our pattern. So you also, we might say, like him, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in him. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in him. How do you do that? Well, the passage isn't finished yet. So let's keep going. From there, Paul turns to a brief string of imperatives telling us what to do. What to do with this knowledge that we've gained. You may also notice in the outline that verse 11 is included with both verses 6 to 10 and with verses 12 to 14. That is not a misprint. It is intentional because verse 11 is a swing verse. It gives a needed conclusion to the last paragraph, but then it also states a foundational idea that is essential to the following paragraph. And so we've included it with both. And we will circle back to it again and again until we're finished this morning. In the last paragraph... Verse 11 was a logical conclusion. Given what takes place when we trust in Christ as Savior, when we're united with him in a death like his, and therefore also in a resurrection like his, then, verse 11, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in him. Summary truth, bottom line, that's just the given. This statement does a great job in finishing the argument of verses 6 through 10. 
But now in the next paragraph, verse 11 provides the biblical theological foundation for the follow-up actions that Paul is charging to his readers, to this string of imperatives we mentioned. So, verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. What he's saying is that once you've considered yourself, counted yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, the next thing to do is not go on sinning. Resist that urge. Stand firm on the truths of the gospel and turn away from it in repentance and faith, having your eyes opened to the freedom that God has given you in Christ through your justification to actually live in light of what you professed. You were in sin. You came to Christ. He removed his sin from you, freeing you to walk in a new way. And so now you engage your will to begin making those choices, recognizing that what's different in you now because of your trust in Christ is that his Holy Spirit has taken up residence with you, resensitized your conscience, has caused you to be born again from death unto life, now is enabling you. Paul will unpack all of this over the next couple of chapters. That is what's happened toward your hearing these charges and not just saying, this is my human effort that's doing this. Nah. Now, this is just direction on what to do. This is the owner's manual on the new appliance of justification you just received. It's telling you how to use it, how to live in it, how to get the most from it. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then he gets really particular. I love this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments to righteousness. We sin with our members, the members of our body. We don't need detailed descriptions of that. That is about as vivid a statement as you could hear. Different ones of us sin with different members of our body. But that's where the trouble lies. So Paul's very first particular charge after the general one of don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies because you're not under its reign any longer. You're under a different reign. Do not present the members, your members, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness for Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. It's, it's the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to walk in them. That's what we start looking to. That's why life in the body of Christ is so essential. I cannot believe anybody can take seriously some of the things we read these days about the fact that if we don't change this or that in the next generation, the church is going to be irrelevant. That will not happen. The only thing that will cause that is if we lose touch with the gospel altogether. But in a body of believers like this, when we are really battling to put to death the old temptations to sin, and we recognize what are resources together with the body of Christ to help us walk through that time and know that freedom, we run to the body of Christ at that time because that's 
where the help comes from. The people of God together under the authority of Christ urging one another on to love and good deeds, protecting one another's faith in anticipation of the day of resurrection. That's what we do together. Sinners, you are welcome here because you are in good company. And by the grace of God, we will know the power of God to live into the justification that is ours by faith in Christ toward a life of sanctification that honors him and pleases God and gets us ready to step into his presence. 4, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the reign of law but you are under the reign of grace. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We're still answering that question. So what is our particular takeaway today? Here it is. We need to let this charge, this teaching from Paul, we need to let this charge sink into our minds and hearts. It's so simple and yet so hard. These truths about our sanctification, about our obedience of faith, which flows out of our justification, which begin with our freedom from the reign of Adam and the flesh and sin and death, and our entry into the reign of Jesus and the Spirit and righteousness and life through our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we need to let this charge sink in and begin to appreciate more and more fully what it's telling us. There's, there's our charge today. We need to let it sink in and begin to appreciate more and more fully what it's telling us. That's why Paul spends such time on it, I believe. We're being charged to live into the freedom that we have been granted by faith in Christ. But it's a freedom we may not fully understand right from the start. Our battle to appreciate it will be spelled out in more detail in the next chapter. But here and now, we're being called to reject sinning as a means of attaining grace and instead to grasp that our freedom from sin has been purchased for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That we have received by faith such that we are now dead to the power of sin, and alive to the righteousness of God. We need to keep preaching that simple, direct truth to our own hearts. Called to reject sinning as a means of attaining grace. It means answering by no means to that opening question. And instead, we need to grasp that our freedom from sin has been purchased for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have received by faith such that we are now dead to the power of sin and alive to the righteousness of God. While we're still in the flesh, we are still in the battle. You can hear us ramping up toward chapter 7, that passage which Paul so vividly describes the battle. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. He understands right where we are. So while we're still in the flesh, we'll still battle. 
But make no mistake, we have been freed from the reign of sin in our lives. We are united with Christ by faith when we trust him. We need to know that and we need to live into that truth. I mentioned slavery earlier. Following the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and then especially the 13th Amendment a couple of years later to the U.S. Constitution, slaves were freed in this country. But many were overwhelmed by their new circumstances and, and, and great struggle ensued. I think we're still living in the wake of that struggle today. But great struggle ensued for them to, to know how to live into their freedom. They just had no experience with it. And the road to learning how to do it successfully and well has been a long and bumpy one. With that as a backdrop, John Murray has made an insightful observation in his commentary on this text from Romans 6. He wrote, To say to the slave who has not been emancipated, do not behave as a slave, is to mock his enslavement. But to say the same to the slave who has been set free is a necessary appeal to put into effect the privileges and rights of his liberation. That's what we're talking about. We who have been freed from slavery to sin need that instruction on how to live into that freedom. We need help to understand the fullness of what is ours in Christ. And Paul is pressing the believers toward that here in chapter 6. This is not at all easy to do, but it is how it works. We just keep preaching the truth to ourselves from this passage that we've been freed from the power of sin and then a bit at a time we learn to live in that. The truth begins to take root in our hearts and, and, and sensitize us to the voice and to the promptings of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God to live into the freedom that is ours in Christ. So, bottom line today, our hinge verse. We must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is our inheritance in the gospel. That is our calling as a church. Pray with me now, and then we're going to gather at the table and give thanks for the work of Christ that has purchased this justification, this sanctification for us. As I pray, musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we long to live in this freedom. Our imaginations are fired by this freedom. We see, Lord God, that this isn't a charge toward greater human effort. This is a charge to lean into the truths of the gospel and to recognize that they can enable, those truths can enable a life for you that the human will is incapable of producing. 
Oh, Father, in these days between trusting Christ as Savior and being raised physically from the grave to eternal life in your unshielded presence forever, in these days of the dash, Lord God, help us to trust in Christ and to live in the freedom that he has purchased for us with his very body and blood. And now, Lord God, for those of us who have trusted in him, May this act of remembrance just be saturated in your grace, enabling us to live in the newness of life according to the glory of the Father in this week ahead, knowing the full joy of the salvation that is ours in him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.